Sinister Myth, How Stories We Tell Perpetuate Violence. This podcast challenges cultural mythologies about sexuality in the West, because so often they encourage, perpetuate, or foster violences against women and minorities. It is supported by an Ohio State Affordable Learning Exchange grant and is created by Zoe Brigley-Thompson and Brendan Walsh. Church. Oh, so could you talk maybe a bit about yourself and a bit of the work you do in your career and kind of um, what made you decide to go down this route? Sure, that's a really big question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am a social worker, a licensed independent social worker. Um, I've been practicing uh, just under 20 years. And, you know, if I were to go all the way back to how I even kind of got to where I am, um, my, you know, my entire life kind of upbringing has been around doing uh, the lens of justice and advocacy, um, empowerment. Um, None of those were things, words I knew growing up, but I come from a family of service and, um, and, and who seeks fairness and equality. Like that's kind of been the underpinnings of my whole upbringing. Um, So when I went to college, I actually started out wanting to be a special education teacher. And uh, my senior year, I didn't like teaching, which it's a little ironic considering I do that now, um, but I I had this really great advisor who asked me to write down words that were important to me, and and I said things like empowerment and bringing people together and you know working in the community, and she said you sound like a social worker, and so I took my first class and I was hooked from then on because just learning how the profession even developed really tied it back into my own upbringing and the own my lens of justice and fairness and equality. And so over the, the past, you know, almost 20 years, I've worked with youth and families, um, worked within a lot of different systems. And something I think I've always been really good at is, is being strategic and thinking so that people can get their needs met, um, which is a, a skill uh, I've learned as I've gotten older in terms of advocacy is that's that skill set of being able to think strategically and saying, okay, here's a roadblock. Where's the, where's the small hole to get through? Um, so I've, I've done, you know, I worked in foster care. I d- did case management. And I'll tell you, there's one job that actually changed my whole professional life, and that was working in HIV and AIDS um, in only 2000. And it was being able to work with consumers who actually were in these groups, consumer groups, where they directed where federal Ryan White dollars went. They had a say in how we did our jobs. And I thought, this is really powerful to see an actual community together making decisions and holding people accountable to provide specific services or do the right thing. And so I went to graduate school at Case Western Reserve University with a focus on, um, it was social and community development, but now the concentration is called uh, Community Practice for Social Change. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Kaleidoscope, that yes. you're the new executive director. Could you tell us a bit more about what this role entails and what in a broad sense, you do as the executive director? Sure. So first, I'll briefly describe Kaleidoscope Youth Center. Um, we are a, a drop-in center slash community center, um, and we serve LGBTQ plus youth ages 12 to 20. 
Um, we've got specific programming. We provide support. Um, we have specific events. We do trainings in the community. Um, and the core of that is really to provide a space of safety, belonging, community within our walls, and then to work in the community so that our youth can experience that also outside of the walls. My role as executive director is to support, guide, and lead that work in a, in a nutshell yeah. and make sure we have the resources yeah. to keep it going. Yeah. And so this is going to be a big question, but... Okay. Um, what are some of the main challenges that LGBTQ youth face? And what are the ways that they're policed that kind mm -hmm. of make these prevalent issues? Sure. Some of the main challenges that LGBTQ youth face, uh, there's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it can start from an internal perspective and just finding their own sense of belonging within themselves and their own self-acceptance. Um, and then having the space to even kind of figure out that that piece. A lot of our youth, though, do know who they are, and they're very unapologetic, and then it's finding a place to be safe to be their full selves and to show up. And so there's the safety piece, whether it's emotional, mental, um, physical safety. We know that our youth are more likely to be uh, survivors of physical sexual assault. Um, family acceptance the family discord is a really big challenge, and you know, that leads to more of our youth being homeless or having insecure housing. And so then we can move into that, you know, finding secure housing and not engaging in work that's going to put them at higher risk. Uh, and so we see a lot of our youth sometimes getting involved in survival crimes. Uh, you know, then that moves into, you know, not being taken care of. And we know how trauma impacts us. And so then we've got higher rates of substance use sometimes and addiction. And then, you know, it's being able to, to have employment. If, if, if kids are dropping out of high school because it's not safe, they're not going to have health insurance and or perhaps have a hard time finding jobs that provide appropriate health insurance. And so it's really the whole quality of life. Um, but if I were to, you know, the, the top few would be around housing um, and access to basic needs, uh, mental health and substance use support, having access to those services. And, um, you, you know, and you asked about how those youth are policed differently. I, mm -hmm. I think... It's a really layered question. I mean, it could start, we could look at it just within our school system, educational systems, and how even the systems aren't always inclusive. And so when we've got conversations happening in schools, and we know that representation is so important and visibility is for our sense of self and belonging. And if that doesn't happen when kids are growing up, like that already is it starts to kind of chip away at their sense of belonging in this world. Um, you know, and then you, you talk about youth of color. Um, communities of color, transgender, non-binary youth, these, the numbers, the statistics actually increase within those communities, um, specifically transgender and non-binary uh, youth of color, communities of color, those numbers are even higher mm -hmm. um, because of all those kind of different issues and, and lack of basic needs and access to resources. Thank you. Yeah, yes. no, that, that was great. That was a big question. And it is. Great. I so might come great. back to it because more might pop up. Right. Sure. Um, so kind of spinning that mm -hmm. um there have been a number of cases of teen suicides uh -huh. as a result of bullying what do you think about campaigns like it gets better and mm -hmm. things like that i remember when the it gets better campaign started and initially i was a little bothered by it because i thought well okay great what does that even mean and how are we helping people access what they need the resiliency so that it can get better um, but I, I think there's a lot of different ways to look at that campaign and it's encouragement. It provides hope. And there are stories that are attached to the campaign. Lots of people have shared their stories. And 
on, on a real world level outside of identity, like life typically does get better. Like adolescence is hard. I don't know many of us who'd want to go back to that time of our <laughs> life. Um, it's just hard in general. You know, I've had two teenagers at home. And so to say life gets better, it does in a lot of ways um, as you have your own agency. Um, but I think for marginalized, members of marginalized communities, it's a hard and tricky thing to say because you need to make sure they have the tools and that they're connected to their own resiliency so that it does get better. And so, yes, it does. And let me support you in being able to find the better is, is really the, the missing piece sometimes. Um, so kind of getting back to the question of uh, trans and non-gender conforming mm -hmm. youth, um, recently greater awareness has been raised about the high levels of violence experienced mm -hmm. by these youth. Do you think there are particular myths about sexuality in society that foster this violence? And if so, like, what would be a couple of the main ones? Yes, I do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do yeah. think there are myths. Um, you know, we can call them stereotypes or myths mm -hmm. or biases. I think a lot of it really comes down to bias, implicit bias, um, prejudices. And, um, you know, if we, if we talk about transgender identities, non-binary identities, you know, we have to first acknowledge that these identities really challenge us as a society to really question everything we think we know about life, mm -hmm. about ourselves, about relationships, about our faith. And, you know, a lot of folks in society are not comfortable being challenged in that way. And when we're uncomfortable, we do things to try to get rid of that discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, it could be ignoring things. It could be trying to change people. And unfortunately, you know, in that trying to change, it can often get violent. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been more acceptance, if you will, for the lesbian, gay, and bisexual communities. Like, you know, love is love, marriage equality. Like, there's general overall acceptance. And um, with the transgender non-binary community, I, I think that we're getting there, and it's not all there. And, and the things that I believe underpin the violence and the lack of inclusion and exclusion is around, um, you know, homophobia, and I think it's around, I think it's it's a women's issue, a feminist issue too, because it really gets around gender norms and stereotypes and how we all fit in boxes and if we don't, and we don't. And so if somebody there is talking to someone whose gender they might not understand and they reflect on themselves, they don't really know what to do with that or what does that mean about me? And mm -hmm. we want to uphold like this certain standard of beauty for people and all of these things that, you know, as humans we're trying to work through, I think a lot of those underpin the violence that is coming out of it and the, sh the sheer hatred for people who are different than us um, really gets to some core issues around that, that fear mm -hmm. and lack of understanding. Yeah, thank yeah. you. That is very insightful. And, and privilege and white supremacy and, you know, yeah, a lot of other right, things right. in there. there. There's so many layers. There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, switching gears again. Sure. Um, in your TED Talk, you discuss your work with LGBTQ youth mm -hmm. um, and the things they've taught you. What are some of the most important things you've, that you've learned through this work? Mm. So my work with LGBTQ youth, um, and in my TED Talk, I specifically talked about um, working with transgender and non-binary youth, and um, you know the topic was choosing compassion in the face of diversity. And so what have I learned? I, I'm trying to think how I even started doing that specifically. It was kind of a natural progression because I'd always worked with youth in general. Mm -hmm. And I'm um, working HIV and AIDS, uh, you know, working in the community with that regard and families. I actually was uh, serving on the board of Trans Ohio uh, when I first started being more intentional about that work and being able to see that trans and non-binary youth were the largest, uh, the most 
vastly underserved part of the community. Um, and so what I learned uh, from those youth, I started a support group, um, which at the time was the first one here in Ohio for, for kids at ages five to 13. And I think why that's important is we see there's a lot of resources available now that weren't there then. So I just think it's important to know in the past probably eight years how much has changed. Um, but what I've learned is different ways of doing things. And so something simple, you know, we would always talk to uh, about how kids are grouped and the, the binary boy girl lineup kind of thing. And, you know, to sit with a bunch of six year olds or four and a half year olds and have them say, why don't we just do our eye color? Why don't we do what kind of shoes? I mean, and it seems like such a simple thing to do differently. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe as somebody who is cisgendered, I would have never thought about that. Mm -hmm. It really, while I can cognitively understand the fluidity of gender and I get it and like, okay, mm -hmm. to see it is a really beautiful thing. And to see kids have enough agency to do that and be unapologetic, mm -hmm. um, I've learned about the resiliency and youth and the wisdom in youth. And, and the kids that I've worked with and continue to work with all seem to have this something special within them that allows them to show up as their full selves and like they're ready for the world. It's really amazing. And it's, it's just this glow, this power that radiates out of them. And I want that for all youth, you know, how can all youth and people access that within themselves that it radiates out, you know, thinking like what, how society could be so different if we had that access. And so that's probably my biggest thing that I've learned is they have it in them. Yeah. And that's been able to teach me how to also show up as my full self because I've, if I'm going to be with them, I've got to access that in myself as well. And mm -hmm. so a lot of internal work happens when doing this, this kind of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. Um, and in that same vein, mm -hmm. uh, during your TED Talk, you mentioned the difference between compassion and pity. Mm. Could you maybe explain that to us here? Yes, the difference between compassion and pity, because um, that was, you know, the title, choosing compassion. And what I, you know, I've always, prior to that time, I thought of compassion as just like feeling sorry for somebody. Like, oh, that's so sad. Let me help them. Um, and what I, I learned and kind of, I'm very, can be very literal about words and I love words. And I was like, that's not, that's pity. Like looking at somebody and saying, oh, poor thing. And throwing something at them just so I can help them is really number one making myself feel better because mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable to see people suffering and it's, it should be intolerable. Mm -hmm. um, but the compassion piece is choosing to stand with people in their suffering and their pain or their challenges. It's, it's saying, oh, this is horrible and I'm going to stand with you mm -hmm. because we are all in this together and I'm going to hold enough space for you so that you can heal and you can figure this out and we can bring resources to you. And so compassion is an active word. It's not just a feeling. Mm -hmm. It's an intentional choice to be with people in their situations and be with them as they're healing and growing and helping them connect to resiliency. Thank you. Um, so you've in the past and currently advocated mm -hmm. very strongly for the rights of trans people. Mm -hmm. Um, what myths, myths about trans people are still encouraged by media, culture, and certain institutions? <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, I was facilitating a training around implicit biases. And I, what I do is I have folks write down their biases and how those might show up in their work. And while it wasn't centered on LGBTQ communities in general, overwhelmingly people were writing things about trans women in particular, like um, trans women are not real women, um, or that it's just a phase, people are confused. 
Um, children don't even know. How can they know? They're they're too young. Um, and I think that feeds into back to the myths of like what a woman should look like and how a woman should act. That youth, that children can't know themselves and can't be wise, and that anything that is variant from what we consider normal or typical must be wrong. Um, which I think you know goes back into those isms and and. And I'll, I'll go back about, about kids and, like, their choice. We over-sexualize everything. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about gender identity, we make it be about sex all the time. And so if we look at, like, the bathroom issue, it's always about sex and people doing things inappropriate. And, um, you know, one of the youth I worked with, they live in uh, Canton area. And um, <laughs> Tuscarawas County is actually where they're from. And I remember going to the school with this family to, to help advocate for um, bathrooms, instead of having this uh, kid having to go across the school. And the teacher said, well, sometimes kids look underneath the stalls. How do I handle that? And she was a third grader. And my question was, why are kids looking under the stalls? Mm-hmm. This isn't this child's thing to handle and worry about. And so our yeah. thinking is always around like sex and purity and like we don't want to talk about genitals and, and we want to assign things. And so it, it just, it's layered up to kind of like, we see how he plays out with adult relationships too. And so I think even removing that piece from things and from the bathroom issue and the threats and, you know, trans women um, using affirmed bathrooms all of a sudden is a safety issue. And for what reason? Mm-hmm. Right? Like there's no reason behind that. And so I think it's also playing on uh, this idea of women it's fear. Like it's right. a, keeping people in fear. And if people are in fear, again, go back to like being uncomfortable and wanting to destroy or protect things. And so I think it's, it's layered, it's nuanced. Um, I think it is a lot of our biases and our, our, our fear based society. Yeah. And I, and I will add the faith piece or religion to it. I think that plays a big role. And, and for a lot of us, even if we're not practicing a specific faith as adults, a lot of folks here, and the states are raised Christian, you know, mm-hmm. predominantly. And so that dominant culture, I, that's a lot of unlearning and undoing that has to happen. And so um, just the a belief system in general about roles and relationships and norms is, is the thing that is, is really holding us back. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been a community lecturer here at OSU, yeah. and you've also worked in the field. Um, is there anything you wish the academic communities working in this area would be aware of or, like, kind of more focused on practically? Yeah. I think as a community, and, I, and I've shared this with the deans too, I would love the practice of how we share pronouns be at the beginning of classes. Like, mm-hmm. little things like that because it's created inclusion. And, you know, even now at the beginning, you know, this, I should have said that my pronouns are she and her, right? And so I'm in the work, and I don't always remember to do that. Um, and so we have to practice and get better at those things that we're creating learning environments for people to feel not just tolerated or welcome, but affirmed and included. And then in that, um, you know, finding when we have all the different readings that we have to do and making sure there's good representation across the board of folks who are LGBTQ and not just when we get to the section about LGBTQ community, um, but there's many folks who are queer have contributed to all the disciplines, whether it be math or music or um, science, engineering, like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of folks. And so being able to have that representation is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, And, 
you know, as an instructor, it's also important for me to be mindful of how I talk about things and keeping that neutrality there and that fluidity there and having conversations. Um, my work in particular in my classes, like I said, around cultural diversity and inclusion. And um, I always tell my classes, like, you are not going to leave here culturally competent. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's attainable. Mm -hmm. But what we can do, you know, and this is where my passion as a social worker comes into working with others, is be culturally relevant in the things that we're doing to reduce harm to stop perpetuating oppression. And I think as, you know, teachers and academic professionals, like that's the work that we should be always doing is being relevant in the work that we're doing so that we can reduce harm. And then the people who are going out from our classes in the world also will reduce harm. Thank you again. Um, yeah. um, so something I've recently been thinking about a mm -hmm. lot is um, the way in which kind of misogyny is the underpinning mm -hmm. of a lot of violence yes. in like LGBT communities. Like you see um, men who are more feminine mm -hmm. kind of being associated with like weakness yes. and like there's this internalized homophobia and this mask for mask community. How much do you think that violence throughout the entire LGBTQ community can be attributed to misogyny or what other like working factors do you think are at play? So as you might imagine, I have lots of thoughts about how misogyny um, plays a role into the violence and acceptance and inclusion. And, you know, I, as I alluded to before, this is a woman's feminist issue um, because I think misogyny is one of the core issues. It, it is the hatred of womanhood, womanhood, especially empowered womanhood. And so, you know, even growing up, you know, girls get to be tomboys, but a boy better not play with dolls and he better not do things that are considered a feminine. Mm -hmm. Because we associate feminist, femi femininity with weakness mm -hmm. and less than. And so until we can change that notion, that perspective, it's going to keep layering up like that. And so, you know, those who are male identified are going to feel a need to fit into a specific box and gender expression. Um, and that's where the whole, you know, passing comes in for mm -hmm. folks who are trans and non-binary and, and safety. Because for that is a matter of life and death for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I remember back when Caitlyn Jenner came out, I was on the cover of, I forget which magazine. Um, but what everybody said was, she looks so good. Mm -hmm. She just looks like a beautiful woman. Okay. So here we go again, lifting up this norm of what women are supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. What if Caitlyn, when Caitlyn transitioned, chose to express womanhood in a different way? Would we be more or less accepting depending on that expression? And, and so it is around this wanting to control women and our bodies and how we express ourselves and what we do in the empowerment. Um, it's, it's that form of oppression, you know, and even around like pay and, and we, we know that we make less money as women and, and all of that. And so I think if we can um, begin, we have begun, but if we can continue to kind of dig into that misogyny and, and, um, the way that it informs our culture. You know, it's, it's institutionalized just like racism is. It's woven throughout the work that we do, academics, um, education, the, the workforce. It's, it's in everything that we do. We have to undo that. That foundation has to continue cracking and breaking up so that we can begin to have different lenses of how we're looking at women, femininity, womanhood, um, and gender expression in general. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we can't all fit in these different boxes. We shouldn't have to fit in these boxes. Mm -hmm.